Let's open our Bibles, please, to the 20th Psalm. And we're going to try to cover the 20th and 21st Psalm. They're both very fairly short. The first one has nine verses, the next one 13. Psalm 20. This is a united prayer of the people. And up until this chapter, it has been David's prayer. In fact, David's personal prayer in, in which he would say, Hear me or preserve me. And he said, I will call, I will wait, I will give thanks. Various uh, prayers were, and psalms were introduced with these words. Hear me, O Lord, or preserve me. And I will call, I will wait, I will give uh, thanks. But in this psalm, it's the people who pray for the king in a time of national trouble. And of course, they were praying for King David. And it has been called the national anthem for Israel. And we're going to see it in that light. It's a prayer for the king. And the first verse says, The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. Notice it's the Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. So the people were praying that the Lord would hear the king. The name of the God of Jacob, defend thee. It's their prayer for him. Here's the request for the Lord to hear the king's prayer. Now, some of these things can be applied directly to David. And many of them will be applied to the greater king, King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who in the days of his trouble cried unto God, too, for, Lord, uh, for God's help. If you have uh, Hebrews chapter 5, let me read a verse for you. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, speaking of the Lord, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, was heard and was heard in that he feared. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh, and yet man, he cried unto God in the days of his troubles. He cried unto God in prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. He prayed before he chose the disciples. And of them he chose twelve and named them apostles. He prayed before many instances. He went up on a high mountain apart to pray, the Bible says. And so he prayed in his day of trouble. In fact, if you have Matthew 26 and verse 38, it says this, Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will. He says, O my Father, if it, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as thou wilt. And so in the Gethsemane, when he was exceeding sorrowful, that's why Hebrew says in the days of his flesh, we'd offered up strong uh, prayers with strong crying and tears and was heard in that he feared. And so the people back here in Psalm 20 are praying that uh, the king's request will be heard. Also in this first verse it says, The name of, of the God of Jacob defend thee. This was a prayer for the defense of the king. It was a prayer in behalf of the king. You know, we're told to pray for our leaders. We neglect that too much because sometimes we lose faith in them. But nevertheless, we're obligated to pray for them. The book of 1 Timothy chapter 2 it says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Then it says, for kings and for all that are in authority. 
The Bible instructs us to pray for our leaders and for all that, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And so we're instructed to pray for our president, for our congressmen, for our senators. We know that there's been a lot of uh, things said in the negative concerning them, but we still have, in spite of all the bad things, we still have the best country in the whole world. And I'm thankful to be an American, aren't you? I'm glad to live in the country, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I still believe it is. And I believe there's a lot of hope for our nation. And if we can get people to thinking right and doing right, and if they will, uh, our leadership will come down on the, that which is, in, is sinful and, and, and iniquitous and love the righteousness. Remember we said in our last lesson that uh, concerning Jesus, and it probably come into view again in, this, uh, in these two psalms, that concerning him it says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And so if we could get our leaders to love righteousness and hate iniquity, then we'd have different attitudes about a lot of things that go on. So prayer for the defense of the king in verse 1. Now then look in verse 2. It's a help from the sanctuary when God's people meet to worship. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Help from the sanctuary. Leviticus 19 verse 30. It says this. Ye shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. In the Old Testament... The house of God, the sanctuary of God was to be reverenced. In the New Testament, the church of God is to be reverenced. But basically, when we go to our sanctuary, it really speaks of Christ himself. In Psalm 73, we'll find that uh, the psalmist was in great trouble, and he saw the prosperity of the wicked, and they cried out against God in foul language. And he said his feet were on slippery ground and he couldn't understand why he suffered and was chastened all the day long. In verse 17, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. And that's the turning point of that 73rd Psalm. And I've expounded it time and again for many of us as we have studied the Psalms. But that was a turning point. The only time we really understand things in God's light is when we get into God's presence. And sometimes we see it like the world sees it. And if we see it that way, we, our eyes are about halfway blinded, aren't they? aren't they? But if we see it as God sees it, if you look at that 73rd Psalm, you'll find the first part of it. The psalmist talks about God being good to Israel. He said his feet were on slippery ground. He saw the prosperity of the wicked, verse 3. Uh, there are no bands in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men. Verse 5. Pride compasses them about as a, as a chain. In verse 6. Uh, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than the heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Verse 9. They set their mouth against the heavens. See, they curse God. Their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return thither, and waters of full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? This is the world and the wicked and, the, and those that oppress and, and those that are prosperous in this world. And verse 12 says, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. In verse 13, the psalmist says, Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He says, What good did it do me to become a Christian? That's what he's saying. You know, I've cleansed my heart in vain. They're the ones that's getting the blessings. And he was seeing things as most of us see us, as far as the world is concerned. He goes on to say, 
for all day long I have been chastened, been plagued, and chastened every morning. He didn't realize whom the Lord loveth, he chastened He says, If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Now, can you see where he's coming from? All the way down, the prosperity of the wicked and how wicked they are. And they speak against God and, and they persecute God's people and they go richer all the time. And he said, I tried to understand this. It was just too painful for me to understand. Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down to destruction. And he goes on and on and on about how that he sees things in a different light. And we could expound that whole psalm and it would be a real blessing, but we've been through it many, many times because it always has a bearing upon something we're saying in other psalms. And here, back in our psalm we're studying, 20 verse 2, Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. This is what the people wanted to happen to their king. In verse 3, Remember all thy thy offerings, and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Remember all thy offerings. Offerings in the Old Testament were offered with prayer. In the New Testament, we're to offer prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Uh, our offering, our main offering that we offer with prayer is, is the sacrifice of Christ and the benefit and virtues of Christ's sacrifice. And that's what makes our prayer fragrant in the sight of God. If you'll remember, the Bible says... Uh, concerning you and I that we're to come boldly with the blood of Christ into a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh because of the blood of Christ we're permitted to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and then they prayed according to God's will look in verse 4 grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel Prayer according to God's will. Remember Jesus said in that uh, supplication that we referred to in Gethsemane, He says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. If Jesus, the Son of God, and God manifest in the flesh, in His human feelings could pray in Gethsemane, Father, thy will be done, does it, doesn't it teach us a lesson that it doesn't do harm for us to follow the same example and say, if thy will, according to thy will. I remember a, a fella I worked with in Wichita Falls one time. A great big large colored fella. He rode around with me. A sweet Christian man. His wife was uh, had cancer. And he asked me to pray for her. And we prayed uh, for his wife. That uh, God's will would be done. If it's his will. He, and you know he was so... He wasn't really selfish. But he was so struck. He said, Brother Joyce, I don't want you to pray that God's will be done. Pray that you'll get over this cancer. I said, yes, but I said, Brother Charlie, Charlie Robinson was his name. And I said, but you know, God has a hand in all these things. And I said, sometimes it's better for us to ask God's will, even in matters like this. And you know, we, we don't want to pray. We want our will to be done, don't we? But it's not always that way. And we're taught to pray that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we have to know it's the will of God. Sometimes it's not the will of God to hear 
to heal everyone. It's not the will of God for our lives to continue. It's not the will of God for things to be like we think they ought to be because God has an overall view and He has a better vision of things than we do. And we don't understand it. We've lost a lot of dear ones in our church in the last seven or eight, ten years, and we don't understand in some cases why. And we always have that question, but we shouldn't have that question. We ought to realize when God speaks and in His providence, things happen. We don't know why. We don't understand many times, but it's that way. And we have to know that He's an all-seeing and all-loving God. And you can't tell who He has saved from, uh, from many heartaches to come by what He does. I'm convinced that He knows best. And then... We find that uh, it was a prayer of thanksgiving. Look at verse uh, 5. It says, We will rejoice in thy salvation, and in the name of our God will we set up our banners. Rejoice in thy salvation, thanking God for everything. And in, in the name of, of, of our God will we set up our banners. We hold the banner of Christ before us. And everything we do are under His banner and His orders, so to speak. When they carry the flag out in the field, they, they're going in the name of our country, our government, aren't they? Or vice versa. And whoever carries that flag, you know, they have the, the uh, one that bears the flag right before the battle. And, you know, that shows who we're fighting for, what we stand for. Well, we should uh, show who we're fighting for and what battle we're engaged in. My, there's so much here I could just dwell on each verse longer, but I want to go right on through and give you an oversight of all these. But I want you to look at verse uh, 6. Now know I that, that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the, sa- with the saving strength of his right hand. Look at that. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. So he knows this. When we know something, we have faith, don't we? Now know I. It was a prayer of faith. They had the assurance that the Lord would hear the king's prayer. Now know I that the Lord will save his anointed, his king. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. The assurance that the Lord would hear and their confidence was in him, wasn't it? Look in verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in the the uh, weapons of our warfare that are carnal. Some trust in their, their great armies. In fact, we're told not to do that. In the book of Isaiah 31, Israel was told. It says, Woe unto them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. See, you have two choices. To trust in your own strength or to trust in God's strength. And when you trust in your own strength, you're just uh, looking for defeat. That's what Peter did, you know, when he trusted his own strength. He said, oh, I'm self-confident. I'm ready to go with thee to prison and to death. And the first thing you know, he was denying the Lord. Right? The thing about it is, we need to realize that, as uh, the psalmist said here, some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So their confidence was well placed, was it not? Look in Jeremiah chapter 9. Let me give you this. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. It says this, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. 
let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exerciseth loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Paul and I were talking today. We were talking about different people, some having a hard time in life, in spite of everything they did to try to be successful or prosperous and succeed. Uh, and others just seem like it happens to them naturally without any a whole lot of effort. Now, we don't know that that's true, but we look at it from, from our vision, our vantage point. And yet the Bible says, and I quote the scripture, I believe, if I can resurrect it, uh, to Paul. And I said, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that the race is not to the swift. Imagine this. Nor the battle to the strong. But time and chance happen to them all. Just because a man can run fast doesn't mean he's going to win the race. Just because a man is strong doesn't mean he's going to win the battle. But time and chance happen to them all. And this is left in the providence of God. And so our trust must be in God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And then uh, the prayer brought victory. Notice this. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen, risen and stand upright. They are brought down and fallen. Do you ever worry about your enemies? You shouldn't. What are you to do? Pray. Pray, and God will take care of them. You don't have to worry about them. You don't have to lift a hand against them. God has better ways of dealing with them than you and I do. Notice, they are brought down and fallen, but we are risen up. Or we are risen and stand upright. The victory came and was brought. Prayer, it was prayer that brought the victory. The Bible says in Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And listen, it says this, According to the power that worketh in us. That's what we fail to realize. That that same power of God that's able to do works in us to bring it about. And it says, unto him be glory, that's Christ, in, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So the glory is in Christ and it's in the church and it's throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We wonder about the Lord being in the midst and, and empowering us and helping us and everything. That's our guarantee. That's our promise. Isn't that a great promise? You know, if we could get to living according to this Bible, we'd have it made, wouldn't we? But the biggest problem is we don't listen to it as much as we should. And then in verse 9 it says, Save, Lord, let the king hear us when we call. And then let's take chapter 21 quickly, as briefly as we can. Chapter 21, we're going to find it's a psalm of triumph. And notice the first verse. Each verse has a special meaning. It says, the king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord. The king is going to rejoice or joy in thy strength. And in thy salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. The first thing we see is the joy of the king. The joy of the king. Remember this. Scripture tells us concerning Jesus. This can be applied both to David and to Jesus. But it tells us concerning Jesus that God has anointed him with the oil of gladness. The Holy Spirit's anointing of gladness or joy above thy fellows. The oil of gladness spoken of. 
That's Hebrews 1, verse 9. I wish they'd be quiet. Okay, kind of hard to concentrate. But look, uh, furthermore, the joy, we're talking about the joy of the king. And remember, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, this is, he's the king, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of God. Now look, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy of having, uh, uh, of bringing into heaven a whole host of redeemed souls endured the cross. He could see beyond the cross, couldn't he? You know, we always want the crown without the cross, don't we? Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, but he did it for the joy that was set before him. Jesus said in one place, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. Have you ever thought of what your eternal future would be without Christ's death on the cross? You wouldn't have one. It says it abideth alone. Heaven would be mighty, mighty lonely apart from Christ's death. There would be no way anyone could uh, enter heaven. His death was an absolute necessity for our salvation. Because he was that corn of wheat, unless he fall into the ground and die, and was and as a wheat uh, germinates, a grain of wheat germinates and, and sprouts and brings forth the full grain and more than itself and a great number. You know, we used to sow wheat. You sow, what, a third bushel to acre or something? And you get 20 bushels to acre. A third of a bushel for 20, how many is that, 60-fold? Some a hundredfold. And you see what happens? Jesus died. He's that grain of wheat and he brought forth hundreds of fold. Millions fold. Because of his death on the cross. And that's the only way we could have ever been saved. And his death was necessary for our salvation. So look at this. It says um, in verse 2 now. Thou hast given him his heart's desire, and hast not withholden the request of his lips. Selah. Thou hast given him his heart's desire. This is the satisfaction of the king. We said the joy of the king. You might want to write down one word by each of these verses. The joy of the king, verse 1. Verse 2, the satisfaction of the king. Notice, thou hast given him his heart's desire, and hast not withholden the request of his lips. Jesus received his heart's desire. The Bible says satisfaction is complete as far as Christ's death is concerned for God the Father. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 11, He, that is God, God the Father, He shall see the travail of His soul, speaking of Christ, His only begotten Son, and shall be what? Satisfied. See, God the Father is satisfied with the work of Christ. For by His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. You see, God is perfectly satisfied with the completed work of Jesus, the only begotten Son, on the cross of Calvary, when He said, it is finished. And yet we as human beings go around sweating it all the time and say, well, I just wonder if that's sufficient. You don't have to wonder if it satisfies God. Why worry about it? If God is satisfied with the sacrifice, and by His knowledge and by His work, He shall justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities, the substitutionary death of Christ, and you and I go around wondering about our sins, worrying about our salvation, Christ paid it all, and God says, I'm satisfied. Isn't this something? You know, you can't preach and teach the Bible and substitutionary work of Christ and atonement of Christ and shed blood of Christ without preaching the security of the believer. 
You just can't do it, friend. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. If God is satisfied and you and I are going to quibble about it, we may worry about the rest of our lives. And that's your privilege if you want to go on doing that. You know. But you don't have to do that. It's your privilege. You can just go and say, well, I just don't know if I'm going to make it or not. Well, God says, well, you're going to make it whether you know it or not. You're going to make it anyway. So you just go and worry about it. And when you get there, I'll just tell you, well, you're here, aren't you? The Bible says you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when life, listen, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. It says we know not what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Boy, I love this. I love this. This is dear to my heart because I believe once you're saved, you're, you're guaranteed to go to heaven. Jesus said in his great high priestly prayer, Father, I will. He said, Father, your will be done. Father, I will that all those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory. You think that prayer will be answered? John 17. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And so, in spite of all the doubts and fears and and frustrations that people have, the Lord says all the redeemed, the blood-bought, are going to be there. We may not be what we ought to be. By the way, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. And do you know the people that are saved by grace do more works than those that profess to be saved by works? That's absolutely true. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But what did Paul do? He compassed land and sea. He went everywhere preaching the word. He suffered shipwreck. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was left half dead. And everything that happened to the Apostle Paul, and he was the greatest worker that the New Testament knows anything about. But he said, I'm saved by grace. Okay, let's go. Where were we? Verse 2, weren't we? 2? Okay, 3. Okay, verse 3 now. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness, thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. Okay? By the way, we had uh, in verse 2, verse 1, we had the the uh, joy of the king, and verse 2, the satisfaction of the king, and also in verse 2, the request of the king. Notice, in verse 2, the request of the king, thou hast given him his heart's desire, and hast not withholden the request of his lips, the request of the king. Now, in verse 3, we have the uh, prepared blessings of the for the king in, in the first part, and then the crowning of the king in the last part. We have two separations, the prepared blessings and the crowning of the king. So look at this third verse. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. The blessings that we have are in the Lord, are, are we not? Are they not? In uh, Psalm 23 and verse 5, 23rd Psalm, notice it says, Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Look at the blessings. That's the blessings. And we find in uh, there are many places that show us the blessings of the Lord. But then the crowning of the, of the king in verse 3. Notice what it says here in the last part. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. King David had a crown, but Jesus will have a crown. He had a crown of thorns when he was upon this earth, but he's going to be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. 
you read Revelation chapter 4, let me give you something. Revelation chapter 4, let's read verse 10 and 11. It says, The four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne, and worship Him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne. They, their crowns go down before Him. But if you want to see His crown, let's uh, drop back to chapter 4, verse uh, 2. It says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. This is Christ on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight like an emerald. And round about the throne were the four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed with white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunder and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And we find that Jesus is the one that sits upon that <coughs> throne, and he's crowned with a, a royal diadem. And down on in verse uh, 10, the elders cast their crowns before the throne. That's what we'll do. Casting, we sing a song, casting down your golden crowns. And then we find, hold your place in the psalm we're studying. In verse 4 it says, He asked of life of thee. He asked life of thee, and thou gavest it him, even the length of days forever and ever. The everlasting life of the King. You know, Jesus said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The everlasting life of the King. We find in the book of Hebrews concerning the life of the King. Hebrews chapter 1, and I quote this so often, but I'll uh, start in again with uh, God the Father speaking of the Son. And it says, Unto the Son, he saith, listen carefully. Unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness, the Holy Spirit, above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of thine hands. Now listen. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They all shall wax old as doth the garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. But thou art the same. And listen. And thy years shall not fail. We're talking about the everlasting life of the king. And that's the same thing it says here. Uh, even length of days forever and ever. Now we find the glory of the king. Look in verse 5. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. That's Christ is crowned with glory and honor. You read in Hebrews chapter 2. The Bible says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? We're talking about man now. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. Didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection, all things in subjection under him. Listen, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see, now listen carefully, not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. There you have it. That he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So man was crowned with glory and honor, but we see not all things were put under him, but we see Jesus who was made in that sense, as we said, a little lower than angel for the suffering of death. That's why he became man. But we see him crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Now back in this. Notice, it says in verse 5, His glory is great in thy salvation. 
Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. <coughs> Notice it says, thy salvation, which means salvation is of God. Verse 6 says, For thou hast made him most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. This is the fellowship of the king. We just talked of the glory of the king. Now this is the fellowship of the king. He's most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. With God's presence. Fellowship. Presence with one another. Remember, John says, These things I write unto you that your joy may be full, and that you may also have fellowship with us. 1 John chapter 1. And he says, Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Fellowship one with another. And truly our fellowship is with the Father. And so we're talking here about fellowship. The, the fellowship of the King. John 10 verse 30. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. We have everything together. I and my Father are one. That oneness is great, isn't it? I appreciate this last few days, Brother Randy, being with me. In these hours of, of turmoil. He and I, uh, we, we were just one together in this funeral service. We needed each other. I believe, according to God's will. And it just worked out that that the Holy Spirit and the Lord worked in through the whole situation. And that's what we need. And our fellowship is with the Father. John says, I'm writing these things unto you that your joy may be full. And he says, the reason your joy will be full, I want you to have fellowship with us, John the Apostle. And he says, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So true fellowship is based upon a relationship not only with one another, but with God the Father and God the Son. Okay, let's go on down. We find the permanent throne of the king. Look in verse 7. For the king trusteth in the Lord, and through mercy, through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. His throne is forever and ever. Remember when Jesus was born? says he would sit upon the throne of David, and of his kingdom there would be no end. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He would raise up Christ to sit upon his throne. Acts 2, verse 30. The permanent throne of the king. And then we find on down, verses 8 on down, the king's enemies are spoken of. Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. They'll be found out. God is able to find them out. You and I don't have to find them out. We'll have to hurry now with our lesson. And they'll furthermore, they'll be destroyed. Verses 9 and 10. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. Who's going to swallow them up? The Lord. You don't have to worry about it. And the fire shall devour them. Their fruit shall thou destroy from the earth and their seed from among the children of men. Destruction would come and it would be by God's power that they would be destroyed. We find in verse 11 that they will be held accountable. For they intended evil against thee. They imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform. You see, God can put a stop to your enemies. They imagined, look, they intended evil against thee. They imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform. You know why they're not able to perform it? God won't let them. The Bible says, and it's Isaiah 54, verse 17. Listen carefully. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. Listen. 
This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Our righteousness is of God. No weapon can harm us. And every tongue that shall rise up against us in judgment, thou shalt condemn. It says this is our inheritance. Okay? Because God will not let them be able to perform it. They're going to be held accountable, are they not? Now, in verse uh, uh, 12, it says, Therefore thou shalt, shalt thou make them turn their back, when thou, thou shalt make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. They will be the target of God's wrath. The arrows are, are the bow is drawn, the arrows are in place, and it's, it's already ready to fly. And that's what God says. They're going to be the target of his wrath. Jude 14, 15 tells us that uh, Christ's coming is going to bring judgment upon all the ungodly and execute judgment upon them for all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. Now then, the last thought, verse 13. Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength, so will we sing and praise thy power. The Lord will be exalted and be praised in spite of all of his enemies. Doesn't make any difference how strong they are. You read over in Revelation chapter 19, when he comes in power and great glory, he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords, and he'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 11, and speaks of the great millennium that will come, and it says, the Lord alone, listen, Isaiah 2 11, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. 